Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Matt Zemek, and I'm with Saka Bali. And, you know, we've uh, had a few podcasts previously previewing Roland Garros, uh, and we also did some Twitter spaces shows, and Saka was producer for those episodes. But here, it, it's the two of us talking tennis, uh, just like old times. And so, Saka, Djokovic wins 23, that fascinating Unexpected match against Alcaraz, a, a very unexpected denouement uh, on semifinal Friday. So much to to go over. So we'll, we'll get into the Djokovic Alcaraz match in a bit. But first, twenty three. Like that is that is the seminal moment. It's the seminal occasion. Twenty three for Djokovic. Twenty two for Rafael Nadal. Twenty for Roger Federer. And because Nadal, you know, might be playing for just one more year, and he's not playing uh, at any of the remaining majors in. Uh, 2023 this certainly does feel like uh, a record that Djokovic you know he has it now and he's going to keep it pretty much for the rest of our lives now we'll we'll see what Carlos Alcaraz does in the next uh, 15 years and 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 we'll see if there's another really special uh, luminous talent but this feels like the moment where Djokovic took permanent uh, ownership of the all-time men's singles major championship hall your your ultimate reaction to Djokovic getting to number three and and 23 and passing Nadal yeah I think there there are many right so even uh when we did the space and now for the podcast I was thinking what's going to be the title of this podcast and I thought uh I saw I read somewhere I think on Twitter or one of the publications or online said Djokovic has taken the lead and and you just said it, right? Nadal is going to play for one more year. He may not even play because given his physical condition, everything's up in the air. He'll try his best to come back. So I would like to say Djokovic takes the lead. And like you said, I think he's going to extend this lead. He's going to keep it for, you know, for a foreseeable future till someone else in the future. We don't even know if there's going to be any player who's going to win more than, you know, 12, 15 majors. So let's appreciate this moment. But I think for the context, this is a race that that became a three-way race. I think some somewhere in 2011 when Djokovic won Wimbledon, right in one of his most dominant seasons, right. He'd already won the Australian Open in 2008, but this was a season that kind of uh, said, okay, you know, it's going to be a three-way race, and he broke away from, you know, that one slam uh, that he had won, and since then, I think he's just been the most dominant player. I think his dominance has had few off years, but he's been, for the better part of the last 12 years, been part of the central conversation in men's tennis. And finally, him taking this lead, it was inevitable in many ways. And uh, he's played a limited schedule due to uh, the world we live in post-COVID, due to government regulations and whatnot. So, and yeah, I mean, sometimes it's not like, I don't want to say we take the greatness for granted, but yeah, this, uh, like I said in the space, a lot of tennis pundits and, and the market and people who know their tennis, uh, not you or not Andrew or Mert, because you all saw this match with Alcaraz differently. And again, we'll get to the road match, but this is the final before the final. And I was surprised, like I saw it as a closed match, uh, Matt, 
but a lot of people who know their tennis and have their, you know, betting algorithms and everything, you know, they picked Alcaraz. And this is no disservice to Novak Djokovic. And this is also an, not an exaggeration of Carlos Alcaraz's talent. But I think what Andrew said, right, sometime, is it that what have you done for me lately thing? Yeah, for I think some fans or some analysts, it could be. But this was surprising to me, like how a lot of us uh, got caught in the moment or, or the victims of the, this moment where Carlos Alcaraz has, you know, incredibly high ceiling. But, you know, we we're talking about Novak Djokovic. We we're talking about one of the clutchest athletes, not tennis players, one of the clutchest athletes of all time anywhere. This guy has just redefined winning. Uh, even I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm, I'll give you the microphone too. I want to talk about lockdown mode that people talk about it. That's just gone beyond defense. It's not the 2020 final against Dominic team in Australia where he played this amazing lockdown mode. Now the lockdown mode means to me he doesn't lose a point. And that point could come offensively, could come with servant volley, could come an exceptional feel on a drop shot, could be change of pace, change of direction, or could be just amazing hitting, you know? But yeah, now let's talk about 23. What does it even mean? And I know we had a space where a lot of people tuned in that day. So I don't want to do a repeat of our conversation, but I'm going to just give you the uh, floor now. Uh, I mean, these numbers are crazy. 65 majors, I think, between these three guys. And this is a race that, like I said, became a two-way race in sometime in 2007. Then it became a three-way race in 2011. And Federer had a good lead. Like a lot of people didn't think tennis careers are going to play out like in the mid-30s these guys will beat father time and when like how many has Novak won in 30s it's incredible 11 or 12 so talk talk about you know the overall <laughs> uh, the math of 23 how we got here and uh, in his third coming like you famously have al- always said post 2018 or including 2018 Wimbledon he's just he, he hasn't lost many matches I think the the starting point is going to be, you know, a, a, an interaction I had with a few uh, really rabid Djokovic fans uh, on Sunday. And, and I mentioned the point that, you know, if he had lost one point to Federer at the 2010 U.S. Open and the 2011 U.S. Open and 2019 Wimbledon, the major title count would look very different. And the Djokovic fan in question uh, said, you know, today's not the day to talk about that. Like how? How dare you try to minimize uh, what Djokovic did? And like you're just expressing regret as a Federer fan. Uh, excuse me, you know that that whole point about three, you know, three points in three different major tournaments significantly affecting tennis history. The whole point of that is to maximize and magnify Djokovic, his career. And his achievements, because when you think about it, you know, tennis has this unique scoring system. You know, it's not who wins more points, wins the match, wins the trophy. It's do you win the important points like that? That is a signature characteristic of tennis. Do you win the one or two points you absolutely have to win? And, you know, if you're sitting there with 20 majors, as Federer does and 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 22, as Nadal does, you have won those one or two important points quite a lot of times and that doesn't need much explanation 
but Djokovic has won those one or two uh, hugely defining points even more often. And that is that is the whole reason I mentioned that. You know, you know three points in three different years at three different major tournaments changing uh, the tides of tennis history. Djokovic wins the one or two ultimate defining points in a high-stakes match more than anybody else, and that's why he's on top. So, you know, there will be people who will say, oh, you're trying to minimize Djokovic. Oh, it just comes down to a few points. That's tennis, though. That That is the sport. That is what this sport is like. That is the ultimate test, is that, you know, winning one or two points, it's a coin flip. You know, the, just be, whatever happens on one or two points, like, you know, you can be the greatest tennis player ever that doesn't guarantee you're going to win a specific point in a specific moment you have to go out and earn it and of course over the course of uh you know 15 20 years you know over this big three era like all three of those guys have lost their share of important points but when you really get down to it socket and you look at all the big matches all the big moments all those all those uh, crucibles Djokovic has come through more of them, right? Like I don't, I don't, and I don't think, I don't think that point can be debated right now. That uh, it it really has to, uh, it really has to be said that Djokovic has owned more of those moments. And you know, I mentioned so 2010 and 11 at the U.S. Open, 2019 Wimbledon, you know, the final. But let's look elsewhere. Let's look at 2014 Wimbledon when Djokovic had a, faced a break point on his own serve. Midway through the fifth set, he loses that point. Federer probably wins the fifth set in the title. Let's look at 2018 Wimbledon, the semifinals against Rafa. Djokovic was very much up against it, but he gets out of it with his serve, wins that match, goes on to beat a roasted Kevin Anderson in the final. I mean, you know, so many different times, Djokovic has been right up against the possibility of looming defeat. And he's won those one or two match-defining points to turn a tournament from a loss into a win. That's how he's at 23. And so the idea that, oh, he's won all these, these tournaments by small margins, and that's, that's just minimizing him, and that's just basically saying that, you know, there's not any real difference between him and Nadal and Federer. You're just trying to, you know, tear Djokovic down. You're actually trying to reduce his stature. No, like the, the that is the whole point of tennis is do do you win the one or two important points? Djokovic has done that. And the other thing to add to that socket, and I'll be brief on this because this does repeat a little bit of what I said uh, in Twitter spaces. It repeats uh, what, what I said in the uh, write-up that I did on, on his championship on Sunday at tennisaccent.com. Uh, this is the, the shorter point, but it still does merit uh, repetition uh, at least a little bit every all the great players you know all the really elite players with 18 20 22 uh 23 titles you know the serenas the everts the navratilovas the Groffs, federer nadal they've all come through really tough scoreboard situations they've all been down uh in a in a major final major semifinal several times over and they found ways uh, to come back and win. They've all done these great things. They've all passed these central tests of tennis so many times. 
you know, over the course of a 15 or 20 year career. But what's different with Djokovic, not that it's not that he hasn't, you know, won all these tiebreakers and won all these clutch moments. Of course he has along with the rest of them, but what Djokovic does more, and I would really put Serena right there with Djokovic in this regard, uh, more so than Navratilova, more so than Groff, more so than Federer, like Groff and Federer were front runners. Not that they couldn't come from behind uh, when they really needed to. Not that they haven't authored some significant comebacks in their histories. They have. Like, there are several big comebacks on on all their portfolios. Um, But Serena and especially Djokovic, they can play poorly for 30, 45 minutes. So it's not just that they trail on the scoreboard, but they're playing poorly. They're playing subpar tennis. And then they get to that moment where they know this is it. This is where I have to raise my game. And they're able to do that. So, again, not that the other elites, icons, legends haven't done this a lot. They all have. But I really do think Djokovic has done it the most. And that's why we're here. That's why he has 23. That's why I think he's going to get you know north of 25. And that's also why. He could win the Grand Slam this year, which does, you know, take him to a whole nother uh, stratosphere of tennis immortality. So it's it's been not just winning tight matches, winning tie breaks, coming through those pressure pack situations, but doing it after 30, 45 minutes of, frankly, not very good tennis. And and Djokovic has certainly does that more than his other great uh, contemporaries. And I think that's really a differentiation point. No, those are excellent points. And you made this point, like even I think a couple of years ago when he won, uh, I think last year when he won number 21 and you said the same thing, uh, it's a fine, fine margin. It's a matter of points. And he is the master of winning these most important moments in tennis. So, and the other thing is he's also won now uh, a career Grand Slam for the third time, and yep. which is great, but there's an there's an odd stat. I mean, for some people, and some people might say he's an exceptional clay court player, and I think he is. But Djokovic having the same number of Roland Garros as the U.S. Opens is kind of a weird stat, because you know a lot of times him coming short at Roland Garros was because of one Rafa Nadal. But uh, a U.S. Open, you know, he should have won more titles than now. And there's nothing to say that he won't win a fourth U.S. Open this year or, or next year because he still seems. Uh, to be the center of the conversation. And, you know, some of us learned that the hard way that we thought Carlos Alcaraz might have a slight edge. Uh, does that uh, stat sit well with you? Three U.S. Opens and three French Opens? Or how, how do you see I mean, that number? Has, I mean, he has 23. So, like, the only the only way, like, if if the if 23 came about with, you know, only winning uh, one major, you know, and Federer just won Roland Garros just once, um, you know, that, that might stick out a little bit, but like having won every major at least three times, I mean, that is absolutely phenomenal. And of course it's unprecedented. Um, you know, so like that really the only, the only way I'd kind of give that a second look is if he had just one title at one of the four majors, but of course he doesn't. Um, and in terms of like, if we're going to get into why does he have just three U S opens? Uh, the answer to me is pretty clear, and that is that it's a daytime tournament. It's a daytime, uh, you have daytime uh, uh, finals uh, at the U.S. Open. And Djokovic has been so great in Australia um, because, you know, that's always a night final. Uh, great conditions for him. 
um, you know, it's it's worth remembering that uh, Djokovic got absolutely roasted in that 2014 U.S. Open semifinal against Kei Nishikori. That was the last year when Arthur Ashe Stadium was a fully open bowl. The next year, they put on the overhang, um, but not like the, they didn't have the full retractable roof, but they put on the overhang to provide shade. Uh, and, and, you know, because they didn't have the full structure yet in place, uh, that was not until 2016 when they had the full retractable roof. It's, it's no accident in my mind that Djokovic won the U.S. Open in 2015 when you, know, you didn't have the, it wasn't especially stuffy and humid uh, there, but you did have more uh, shade cover. So that to me, that explains at least a part of the whole U.S. Open uh, situation. But ultimately, three of each is just absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, he's, you know, I, I would say before it, it, it's all over, he's probably going to get a fourth uh, U.S. Open. And, of course, you know, if, if his longevity is able to continue, the real question, and, of course, we're going to get into that Alcaraz match, but the real question for Djokovic is, is it's less about can he win at the U.S. Open or can he win the Grand Slam? It's more about how quickly does Alcaraz learn from what we saw, uh, you know, at the French Open this year. Uh, to me, you know, how quickly Alcaraz can learn and grow is the key question. And, you know, Rafael Nadal um, proved to be a quick study. It's going to be fascinating to see how quick a study uh, Carlos Alcaraz could be. And yeah, let's talk about that match. But I also want to just clarify, like when I asked the U.S. Open and French Open comparison is Markov, how great he's been and how resilient he's been at Roland Garros. Because, you know, even yes. if he had two Roland Garros titles because of Nadal, no one would have flinched because, you know, Nadal's Nadal and Djokovic is the only guy who's beaten him there twice. But to win same amount as U.S. Opens uh, at Roland Garros is just incredible. Uh, it is, yeah. and that, and 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 we need, just need to say very briefly that, like, he's he's the he's the second greatest. Uh, uh, I mean, he's you know Nadal and Borg, Djokovic clearly the third greatest play quarter of all time with this championship. Like that, that should not be a debate if anyone uh, is having it. Like that, that should pretty much settle the debate. And and actually, if you wanted to debate uh, Djokovic or Borg for second greatest play quarter of all time behind Nadal. I think we, you could at least have that conversation. Like, I don't think anyone should be saying, oh, you know, Borg, clearly. Um, I think you could say Borg, you know, has still has still earned it. But the fact that Djokovic has been going into these Nadal headwinds for so long and he has uh, won three, um, you can certainly make a claim that he's the second greatest uh, clay quarter ever behind Rafa. Like you, you could have that debate, but at, at the very worst, at the very worst, he is the third greatest uh, clay quarter, uh, you know, among the men uh, in the open era, for sure. And yeah, his, his also his record at Rome and, you know, other tournaments, he's beaten Nadal more than a few times. So yeah, definitely, you, you know, that debate is very much on. Uh, again, uh, Mert and some of the others would say it's tough to compare eras, and I also respect that view. But you're right. You didn't shortchange Borg at all. You said at the very least, this is grounds for like a a very healthy discussion. So now let's talk about the Carlos Alcaraz, a big match, right? Tennis Channel has come out saying it was the second most watched match in the network's history. So good, good. You know, like tennis is creating that, you know, that, that matchup with Djokovic still in charge. And we have a potential uh, chance of this rivalry, even though they're like, what, 16 years apart. If Alcaraz 
can keep improving and keep finding ways to, you know, reach these big matches. And Djokovic is still there. I think we, we can get a few of these looks. So my only takeaway here is, Matt, before I give you uh, the floor for your opinions, uh, in the other sport that I kind of do a podcast in cricket, uh, there's this uh, notion with a lot of sophisticated stats. A lot of people say there is no such thing as pressure and, you know, it's about skill. And that argument just can, you know, look Carlos Alcaraz's honest assessment that, you know, for this big moment, and he's no slouch, he's an accomplished 20-year-old who's already been world number one, has beaten the likes of Djokovic and Nadal, won the U.S. Open, uh, clearly beating the likes of, uh, you know, Sissipas and Zverev and, you know, the the other uh, members of, you know, uh, not the next gen, but uh, the gen before next gen. So he's an accomplished guy. So if he can feel the nerves, right, in that moment, this was a big, big match for him. Like everybody in the tennis world was waiting for this contest. So to me, that shows like sports is always played by human, right? As much as we can sophisticate the stats. And uh, of course, stats make the audience better, uh, informed, like what went on in the match. There's so many new stats that have come in tennis due to the Hawkeye and also the IBM data that we get, the rally length. And, you know, we talk about rally tolerance uh, and all that stuff, which makes for a good discourse. But anyone who says there's no pressure or there are no big moments, which I don't think applies to you, you always talk about the inner game. So that kind of shows like how badly and eagerly Alcaraz wanted. And these were not cramps of how he did not eat right or how he didn't drink enough, you know, liquids. You know, these guys know what they're doing. They have an entourage supporting them. So talk about, you know, like the moment. Uh, Alcaraz just, you know, uh, and it's a learning experience. There's no shame in that. And he took it on the chin and he said, no, I mean, a lot of his was because what Novak did in the first two sets, but I was just nervous. I have this nervous energy. So that kind of like puts sports into a whole different uh, level that sometimes gets overlooked, that even you can rehearse your mind and train your body. And a lot of times it won't go according to plan because if the nerves become a factor, uh, it was, you know, what do you think of that, uh, that aspect of the game? Well, first off, like, does anyone... Remember uh, the 2004 Roland Garros final between uh, Gaston Gaudio and Guillermo Coria? Like that, you know, wasn't the same kind of match. You know, Coria dominated the first two sets. Uh, the Alcaraz uh, cramping happened after, you know, more than two and a half hours of play in a match that was tied a set apiece. You know, it was a pretty even battle, but, you know, Coria just absolutely crushes Gaudio in the first two sets. And then he get like, like, so he, they barely played. Uh, and he still got nervous to the point that he was cramping. And, you know, it, it turns into a bizarre five setter uh, that Gaudio ultimately wins. But that but that match does reinforce the idea that, you know, pressure, nerves, they manifest uh, in different ways for different people and they can manifest quite violently. And we saw that with Alcaraz, you know, just as much as uh, we saw it with uh, Guillermo Coria. Uh, 19 years ago and and so nerves don't always manifest in the form of you know shanking shots and d- hitting a double fall every third point something like that nerves manifest in all sorts of different ways for for different kinds of people uh and and so we have to say that while Alcaraz had won a major title okay he he played center Tiafo and Rude in his final few matches so 
didn't have to go through Djokovic, didn't have to go through Nadal. And he played Djokovic once before, but that was Madrid. And, and you know, that Madrid, the dynasty Madrid and Roland Garros, totally different. And Alcaraz, you know, being world number one and going up against Djokovic in a semifinal. And, uh, you know, and let's keep in mind, he had two whole days off uh, between his Tuesday quarterfinal and uh, that Friday uh, semifinal. So, so he had a lot of time to think about it. And boy, it turns out he really did think about it. He overthought it, you know, he, 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 he brooded, he pondered, he contemplated and that got to him, uh, but it didn't get to him in the way that we normally associate, you know, this match wasn't decided by a poorly played break point. It was just decided by fitness, you know, cause Alcaraz did win that second set, but then the, the, just the energy, the, the, the stress in his body just completely took over and he didn't know how to flush that energy. Uh, out of his system and you know that's like a real real part of not just being an athlete but i would also say being a performer like a young uh singer or a piano player like if anyone's had a piano recital how nerves uh, affect you there um you know if if you're if you're not used to it like there are going to be moments where you, you know people are surprised like it, it, it there's there's a thing to life where if you haven't been there before, if you haven't been in a specific situation, you can't be expected to know how to exactly handle all the nerves, all the tension uh, that's going through you. And, you know, you mentioned earlier in the in the show, and, and this is another part of the discussion, you know, why were the betting markets and a lot of people uh, favoring Alcaraz? And, you know, you look at Sitsipas, such an accomplished play court player. That's his best surface, and Alcaraz just absolutely walks all over him in a match that's not even close. And you can see truly how high Alcaraz's ceiling, how how great his potential is. But you know, with all due respect, Sitsipas and Djokovic, two completely different animals. Really, a non-big three player and a big three player, completely different animals. And, and I think that's what people lost sight of. That even though Djokovic was older. And even though he had some elbow issues, and even though he wasn't fully back uh, at Rome against Holger Runa in a match that he lost, you know, he still had time. He still had time to regroup. And, of course, at the best of five format, what can you do? You, you play your way back into shape. You play your way back into competitive form in the first week. That's exactly what Djokovic did. He looked, looked solid. You know, didn't might not have looked unbelievable, but he looked, you know, good. He looked basically himself and so the betting markets the betting algorithms like they seem to just lose track of whoa wait this is a 22-time major champion this is a guy who's figured out Nadal on clay this is a guy who's overtaken Federer at Wimbledon this is a guy who you know has been the dominant player in men's tennis uh over the past decade I mean it seems weird but like people really did seem to discount Novak Djokovic and his competitive ability and that Friday match, even though it had that weird uh, plot twist, um, it, it did boil down to a very simple elemental thing. Djokovic had been there before Alcaraz had not. It's really, you know, that's most of the battle. That's most of the equation in terms of why that happened. And also in terms of why, you know, it seemed that this was still a tournament where Djokovic 
was going to be able to pull through because uh, Alcaraz had not been to the Roland Garros semifinals before. And the other thing, you know, it, it doesn't really show up. Oh, well, it might show, it shows up, but a guy like Sitsipas or a guy like, uh, uh, you know, Hachinov, they're not quite good enough to make Alcaraz pay for these moments. But we do see Alcaraz every now and then, Sakib, he will try to hit the absolute perfect shot. Like there, there are, there were times in the Sitsipas match where, you know, he's trying to hit a backhand return uh, from the ad side in the doubles alley. You can pretty much tell, like, I'm going to hit this down the line and I'm going to get it into both corners. You can tell that sometimes Alcaraz just wants to hit that perfect shot. Now, of course he's smart. Of course he's fast. Of course he's powerful. You know, again, his upside is considerable. But, but Alcaraz will show every now and then that he's still a kid, that he's still a really young uh, athlete. He has these very youthful uh, moments, sometimes moments of exuberance, sometimes moments of you know audaciousness. And it really comes through like he he's not a poker face. He's still a young uh, man. And that like that youthful, hopeful, uh, boundless energy type profile Um you know, it serves him well in a lot of ways, but against a master of the tennis arts such as Djokovic in a major semifinal, it was bound to run up against uh, some difficulties. Now, not in the way we expected, right? Not in the way any of us had anticipated or thought about before the match, but on a broader level, Djokovic has been there, Alcaraz has not, and that's definitely what decided that match uh, as much as anything else, if not more so. Yeah, I mean, uh, you kind of summed it well, and uh, everybody, you know, can cannot wait for them to clash in the hardcore season. I don't know honestly what to expect from Alcaraz at the grass season last year. He lost to Sinner, but there's nothing to suggest that he can't adapt there because he does play a supremely offensive game. Uh, you know, his his weapons should work on grass at some point, but it's yet to be seen uh, what this uh, grass season, especially Wimbledon, shapes up for him. So again, if we're going to talk about Djokovic as a heavy favorite, which he is going to be at Wimbledon, to again have another shot at calendar slam, and this is again a continuation of, or, or maybe I'm repeating what I said on the uh, Twitter spaces, and you already have given some context why the U.S. Open has been like a tough hunting ground. A lot of people would you know, kill to have a career where they win three U.S. Open, and we say, yeah, it should have been more. But we are talking about Novak Djokovic, right? So... Is Alcaraz Djokovic, uh, you know, could be the match that settles the U.S. Open far, far from the draw. And we don't know how the hardcore season is going to be. But are these going to be the two power players? If health permits, everybody shows up in New York. And is that the match you look forward to? Because uh, till Nadal comes back, this is the matchup I think most people want now. Oh, no question. And like Alcaraz gets back into the arena, back into the ring with Djokovic. And can he just, can he just, you know, handle his body and his nerves? Because, you know, this is the thing about the actual points that were played and the style of play in that, in those first two sets before the cramping set in Alcaraz was playing points to end them quickly. And you think, wait a minute, Alcaraz is, you know, a decade and a half younger than Djokovic. Alcaraz should welcome the prospect of playing a five-hour match. Because in a five-hour match with his, his speed, his power, 
um, you know, he, he is, he is a, a muscular carved out athlete, but you know, who's light on his feet. Like he's a jock. He Alcaraz could run forever. You know, when, when, when the fitness is, is fully there and, and he's, he's fully in tune with his body, um, you know, like he should welcome the prospect of being able to run all day. Uh, you know, because like Djokovic, we've seen him in his prime. You know, he would grind opponents into into dust with his fitness, with his court coverage, his ability to hit the extra ball. You know, Federer would would uh, you know tire of the chase and would not be able to keep up. Well, Alcaraz should want a physical endurance test uh, type of match against Djokovic, but he wasn't playing that way. He was playing to to, to end points sooner rather than later. And so, obviously, the way his nerves and his body. Uh, were part of that equation in ways that we couldn't fully see uh, in the, in those first two sets. So if we presume that Alcaraz figures out the nerves, you know, and he, and he, 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 he handles that part of the equation. All right. Then, and, and his body is relaxed and Juan Carlos Ferrero and, and the team are able to just get him to just say, Hey, just play the match. All right. You know, the, 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 the results will take care of themselves. History will take care of itself. You just play, play ball. All right. And don't overthink this. Just play each point, play the way you're meant to play, execute your game plan. You don't have to bail out of points early against Djokovic. If Alcaraz can just, just play tennis. And I mean, then that's the mental challenge that he, that he has to uh, conquer. Then, you know, in a protracted four hour, five hour battle, I think he can be the last man standing. And that's not a negative commentary on Djokovic's fitness because that has won Djokovic so many major titles over the years. It won him this title at Roland Garros. But Alcaraz should welcome a physical battle. You know, in, in Madrid, he was just playing tennis and he was fresh after over three hours uh, in an extended match in which he beat Djokovic. So because he's so young, because he has those young legs, if he can just be physically whole, then he's going to be able to play points so that he's um, playing longer and he's not giving Djokovic an escape hatch. And if he can do that, he can beat him. And I don't think it would be a, a, a tremendous upset when you look at how much upside uh, Alcaraz has. But can he mentally harness all of this and put the pieces together? And, uh, you know, the jury is still very much out on that question. Absolutely. So before we talk about Iga Sviantek's third Roland Garros title, let's have a quick discussion or quick exchange of notes on Kasper Ruud. You know, he has three major finals. That's the same number of combined major finals that Sasha Zverev and Stefan Tsitsipas has. And Felix Ogiel-Yassim and Andre Rublev were ahead in the pecking order till last year's Roland Garros. And for some people, Ogiel-Yassim still has a higher ceiling. I'm one of them than Kasper Oud, uh, whenever he can put that together. So where does this put Kasper now in the mix? He's made three finals in like last five majors, comprehensively beaten in the two Roland Garros finals, made a better account of himself than last year against Nadal. But, you know, besides the first set, was never ever any doubt that, you know, he was even close to winning a set. So what does that do to his stock in, like, in your assessment? Where do we start putting him in this? Or the other thing is, you know, he doesn't still have a ceiling to win a major, but he makes his finals. Uh, would you fancy him in a major final against a Sissipas? I mean, 
uh, what has he done you know to to build his stock by putting these three results and this result came from kind of nowhere he lost to botic wandesan shulp you know in miami when i talked to him in istral he was losing more matches coming there than he won a title but didn't look uh very convincing either in rome or the masters 1000s after that uh made i think a semi in geneva which he had won two years prior lost to nicolas jari so this result was very fulfilling but was what does that do to folks like us when we analyze and do podcasts and write about the sport where do we start putting him you know how do we start him where it's really quite fascinating right because you know he looked so lost and adrift uh out you know heading out of madrid uh really had not posted very many results i mean he did make it to the weekend in estoril and you were there and you interviewed him uh but when it didn't come together for him in madrid you know he didn't he hadn't had a lot of results to his name uh in the 2023 season through four and a half months of play you know heading into rome in the middle of may and uh you know he admitted that you know the off season didn't go great it didn't go the way uh he wanted and and the other thing is like we we know this very well from from uh watching lots of other players uh on both tours like Caroline Garcia is a classic case in point uh for the women you know you have a good year or or especially like a good second half of the season uh and then you come back the next year the tours waiting for you tour is studying you the tour has scouted you uh the tour has uh you know figured you out and you have to be better just to maintain your place and garcia has not been able to do that you know we see plenty of other players as well like anet contivate um paula bedosa you know who had great uh surges in one year but then they come back next year and they get kicked in the teeth uh that like that certainly seemed to be what was going on with casper rood right and then you know he's able to just pick it up uh in rome and then immediately springboard uh into paris and people will say oh but that draw was just so easy that draw was just so favorable for him it opened up like a red carpet like you know it, it was just absolutely extraordinary how everything broke well for rude but hey yanik sinner had a great draw in that bottom half uh alexander zverev had a great draw in that bottom half Sarundalo had a great draw in that bottom half. Uh Runa had a great draw in that bottom half. So like as Andrew Burton our you know consultant in-house analyst said on the Sunday Twitter spaces and he's fond of saying this always, you know, well, someone has to win, you know, someone has to advance on that draw sheet, that bracket, and Rude keeps being the guy to do this. And so you can list you can say, oh, you know, his first 3 major semifinals were against Chilich, Hatchinoff and a and a depleted, you know, diminished, you know, not not fully there Zverev. You know, it's not the Zverev that we've seen before before his injury. He's not the same player after his injury. Okay, but like Rude had to get there. Rude had to get to those major semifinals with those good draws. And so it really is kind of remarkable, but you know, Yannick Sinner he hasn't made a major semifinal and rude already has three major finals and there are other players you know with luminous talent and lots of ability that they're they haven't made a a semifinal let alone a final and there's rude with three and you know like uh Yevgeny Kafelnikov, Michael Stieck, uh lots of other really accomplished players from past decades and various eras 
Casper Ruud has already matched their uh, major final count. Uh, you know, looking this up, there are 30 men in the open era who have made four or more major finals. So Casper Ruud, if he makes one more major final, and really at this point, he has he has a lot of career left. He has a lot of time left. Like he's not an old man for sure. As soon as Casper Ruud eventually gets to a fourth major final, which you know, at this point seems probable that it's gonna it's probably gonna happen at least one more time, right? Uh, he'll be just one of thirty-one men to do that. Casper Ruud, he'll be just one of thirty-one in uh in in tennis history in the Open era. So like that is. I'm maybe not spectacular, but it it does mean that he is part of a very he's, he's on the verge of being part of a very exclusive club. And that tells me like he's maximizing his game. He's maximizing his career. And and like in a, in a very short order socket, like the, the struggles of the past four and a half months, they're out the window because this right here, this what he did at Roland Garros, that's going to be what people remember from his 2023 season. Uh, you know, while other players struggle to figure it all out, Sinner being a, a very conspicuous example, Felix Oje Aliasim being another very conspicuous example of a player not putting all the pieces together in the biggest tournaments. Casper Rude's doing it. And you, if you want to downplay his draws, like I get it, but someone has to be winning these matches and Rude is doing it consistently, certainly consistently enough that he's made three. Of the last five major finals, he's made three major finals in a 12-month period. So, you know, if someone has to do it, well, Casper Ruud's saying, well, I guess I'm just going to step on through if none of y'all are going to, you know, join me or none of y'all are going to top me. So it really is an extremely impressive achievement, and we shouldn't be uh, uh, underplaying it just because he lost in the final. Uh, the fact that he... And no one else is getting to these uh, major finals when the when the half of the draw busts wide open. Like that takes a special skill. Like we we all know this, Sakib, from from following tennis over the years. That when you know that you have an opportunity, when you know that like a a big obstacle in your draw, whether it's Medvedev or whatever the other highest seed is, you know when you're in that locker room and you see that high seed fall, and you realize you know, like you know. Instantly, wow, my odds are just uh, have just gotten a lot better. Like handling that pressure is huge. Like we all remember Federer when Nadal got upset by Robin Soderling at the 2009 French Open. Like those matches were really tough mentally. Haas, and then of course in the semis against Delpo, those were huge mental lifts precisely because everyone knew, oh, if Federer doesn't win it now, he's, he's never going to do it. And it's kind of similar with Rude. Like, oh, opportunity of a lifetime. That can easily snowball into anxiety, stress, the things that, you know, ambushed Alcaraz in the Djokovic match. Casper yep. Rude has put it all together, kept himself steady, kept himself focused. What, what a marvelous display of uh, composure and poise in situations that empirically his peers are not managing to do nearly as well. I think you said it all, and I would just like to just add a simple line to it, which you obviously covered. Uh, I don't know what his best of five record is, but he's shown in the last 12 months in these three runs to the major final that he knows what the rhythm of a five-set match is, be it winning in four or five or three. 
he stays the course. And that's pretty impressive to me because no matter what the draw is, there are no easy draws. Yeah, there are some easier draws, but still, like Andrew said, someone has to win these matches. And guess what? He plays one more final. He'll be joining Pat Rafter and Marat Safin in the next, you know, <laughs> league. That's the four final league. Of course, those two guys have won dual majors, but still reaching four finals is not a small feat. So well done, Casper. And let's see, you know, how the year unfolds for him. Let's talk about Igor Fiontek. Now, you know, the Borg, Nadal, Djokovic comparison, you know, that's what you mentioned, Nadal, obviously, in a league of his own. Uh, what does this do to Iga Shriantik at 22? Uh, think, things can change, right? I remember as a 14-year-old or whenever, a 13-year-old, when Boris Becker won his third Wimbledon, there was an Indian magazine called Sports Star. says, 21-year-old Becker was a three-time champion. To me, still, that's one of the most staggering future outlooks. Everybody thought he's going to win as many as Borg or maybe five or six. He never won again. But I don't think we have to worry about Iga unless there's an injury or something. So what do you make of this run, Matt? I mean, she's equaled the likes of Arancha Sanchez-Vicario. Monica Sellis surely would have won more, but that's the kind of cards, you know, unfortunate incident that would dealt to her. Serena Williams won three. So she's right there with these kind of players. And next stop is Justine Anna. So... You know, I, I think she's a buy to win four or five. What do you think at this point? I mean, you know, this, this is this is certainly how you would envision a stratospherically successful career unfolding uh, with, uh, you know, the four majors, three Roland Garros's at age 22. But the key point to, to, to emphasize here, Sakib, and for the people who are listening to us here on the Tennis with an Accent podcast, it's not just that she bagged this latest title. It's the way she won it, right? Because, you know, and she was tested to a degree by Jabur in the second set of the U.S. Open final last year. And interestingly enough, I think that second set, getting a test instead of running away with that final, I think that really helped her here. I think that memory, that, that point of awareness that, you know, at the very end, she had to work really hard to beat Jabir. Like she dominated the first set, but like at the very end, she was made to work very hard for that U S open title. I think that really came in handy against Makova here, but like this was a, obviously of an even more difficult test compared to the Jabir final, because, you know, she uh, was down. I mean, she lost a set and then she was down to love in the third, not playing her best. uh, And yet she's able to just scratch and fight and claw and, and and pull that match out of the fire. So, you know, her 2020 and 2022 Roland Garros titles, you know, really were not that overwhelmingly difficult. She had one tough match at the at Roland Garros last year on the road to the title. Um, but like 2020, which, you know, she just absolutely blew away everyone. And so the great ones, when we think about Serena, when we think about Djokovic, when we think about Rafa, Navratilova, Everett Graf, they win championships like this, like, you know, Steffi Groff, one of her, uh, I mean, she's had, uh, well, at the, at Roland Garros, we remember that 1999 final against Martina Hingis, you know, that was basically an uphill battle. It seemed for a long time that Hingis was going to win, but Groff just said, nope, you're not, Martina, you're not winning this. I'm, t- I'm taking it. I'm going to walk over hell. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to, you know, just do whatever it takes to, to take this match from your hands. Um, the, the, the greatest of the great win those kinds of matches. Um, 
it, it, you know, in terms of Groff, uh, in terms of coming back and winning a three setter, uh, her 1988 uh, Wimbledon final against Navratilova, really in many in many ways the match that really launched her to the next level. You know, losing the first set, but then then coming back against the queen of center court, who had won six straight Wimbledon titles. Groff just said, you know, I'm just planting my feet down here, uh, Miss Navratilova, and I'm not letting go here. And th- there's a there's a new queen uh, of center court in town. So like th- that proud, defiant stand, even when you're not playing at your absolute best, uh, you're going up against formidable opposition uh, for Sviantec to win a major like that, for her to win a major final like that. Boy, that is just going to give her so much more belief in future major finals, right? Like she already has so many pieces uh, of the puzzle. She already has so much of this figured out. Now, obviously her serve, like that is the Achilles heel. That is, you know, her second serve is very attackable. She also doesn't get as much placement and variety on her first serve. Like I, you know, I commented a lot about how uh, Haddad Maya in the semifinals, she was standing in the doubles alley on the, on the deuce side. She was daring Sviantek to hit a T-serve from from the deuce court. And Sviantek wouldn't do it. And so, like, that has to be a thing with her team. That has to be a point of discussion. There are ways for her to not only beef up her serve, but also, you know, employ different kinds of serves, uh, get more placement from more angles uh, to more more targets uh, with her serve. Like, there's so much that she can develop there. But when you're looking at everything else, Sviantec, in terms of ground strokes, defense, uh, just competitive will, and then being able to handle the pressure of this uh, Roland Garros final against Mukova, like, it's so much is already there. And, uh, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said for, you know, how similar um, Iga Sviantec and Carlos Alcaraz are that they both often want to hit the perfect shot and they're frustrated when they don't, you know, there, there are moments of impatience. Uh, but when Sviantec and Alcaraz are both playing very patient tennis, they're playing the percentages, you know, they're hitting the ball heavy and with power, but to safe targets, you know, like a foot from the lines, a foot from, you know, the corners, good, good luck beating them. Right. Cause they, they just have a, such a steady, uh, and and yet imposing game you know it's it's forceful and yet so smooth and reliable you know when they're playing uh patient tennis and so for Sviantec to you know win a match like this um you know against the run of play or maybe not against the run of play but like it was a it was a fist fight uh like this was the kind of win that we've seen so much from Serena Williams you know against you think over the years over the decades against Kleisters against Azarenka, against Safarova in the 2015 Roland Garros final. How many times have we seen Serena down 2-love in the third, come back, wrestle a match away from an opponent's grasp? For Sviantec to do this uh, so early in career, it really bodes well for her to have, you know, that next level kind of career where, you know, in 10 years we're talking about a, a person with a heck of a lot of major titles, uh, especially at Roland Garros. Yeah, so let's also talk about Irina Sabalenka before we talk about Karolina Mohova. Uh, blowing a 5-2 lead right in the third set, but she's definitely in a different stratosphere by winning Australia. She was like Novak Djokovic, had a decent chance 
to go all the way here. So what does that do to her here? I mean, do you hold that against her? Or do you think that's a missed opportunity to not play this final? Or uh, you you think she'll have plenty of looks at this kind of a title again? Well, I do think she'll have plenty of looks. But, of course, this does invite the possibility. You know, what happened against Mukova, where she lost, I believe it was 20 of the last 24 points after being up 5-2-30-11 in the third. This does at least invite the possibility that she will regress. She's going to slip back into the mode where, you know, when, when a few things don't go her way, she unravels. And that's the thing that Sabalenka had been preventing. That's the thing that she had successfully managed to guard against, or she had man- managed to, you know, avoid that kind of, uh, you know, d- step in a pothole, step on a rake disaster. Whenever a match had begun to go against her, you know, in, in recent months, Sabalenka would just reset. You know, she would achieve that short memory that athletes need to have, and she would come fighting right back. She wouldn't, you know, let four or five errors fly off her racket. She wouldn't lose, you know, three quick games. But before Sabalenka really learned how to put the pieces together, as we've seen her do in 2023, you know, 2021 Sabalenka, and earlier iterations of Sabalenka, that's what happened. That that that's that uh, would ambush her. It would derail her. That you know she would be in a favorable or at least neutral scoreboard situation, and then she'd miss a shot or she'd double fault, and she would allow that to just hijack the next ten minutes of that match. That's what she had been avoiding, and it was therefore so surprising to see it happen. At the end against Mukova. Now, I would say that, you know, this match was an aberration for Sabalenka within the context of her 2023 season, not within the context of her career, but certainly within the context of this year, this season. And so the big question becomes, can she just immediately reassert herself at Wimbledon and have a very strong tournament, really a tournament in which she makes the final? I think that she at least needs to put that much uh as a goal, you know, because she hasn't made the final at Wimbledon yet. Um, if she can reassert herself at Wimbledon, then everything's on course. But if she suffers another loss akin to this, where it's not just that she loses, it's not just that a, another player's better than her, but it's but it's the specific pattern of she unravels in a ten a devastating 10, 15 minute stretch. Then we can talk about, you know, un- the idea that she's going to undo the good work that that she's put in to this point. Then we might be able to talk about a real unraveling uh, for Sabalenka in a larger context. But, you know, we're not there yet. And we need to see uh, if Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, you know, reaffirm all the good things that she's done or if, you know, she loses faith, she loses confidence Um I, you know, I would I would trust that she's gonna figure it out, but she has certainly opened the door. She has certainly invited uh, a fresh set of less than than ideal possibilities. Well, that's a good explanation, and let's see how she does at Wimbledon. She definitely has a big game, and uh, she can definitely have an impact on on the lawns. So she will be an intriguing follow. She's number two, I think, in the ranking. So why not, Carolina Mohova? Number 43 in the world. Talent was always there. She's done it in Australia before, but this was her deepest run. 
uh, how does the profile change going forward if you know she can avoid injuries could could we look at like a a permanent residency in the top 10 and maybe more kind of a final weekend opportunities because uh, the game is breathtaking it is breathtaking and i think that the central lesson to take away from makova is that you know a, an all court game a blended game uh, a game that's not you know anchored or nailed to the baseline but you know is willing to come to the net hit the ball at varying speeds uh and spins and placements that's that's not just something you do on grass or on fast hard court uh clay can can certainly uh welcome that kind of game and we need to remember ash barty won her first major at roland garros not at wimbledon not uh not at the u.s open not not in australia she won her first major on clay and so like if barty and, and mukova can be making major finals uh on clay before they do it on other surfaces wow like that should be a message to the rest of the wta locker room that you really don't have to be uh married to a conventional style and you can play attacking all court uh you know very varied uh and uh multi-layered multi-faceted tennis that you can do that on all surfaces and so as much as we do like to mention you know how different certain surfaces play and how different certain surfaces uh, suit a given player's game, like the way Sitsipas's forehand, uh, the way clay is is hospitable to it, uh, you know, to an extent that grass is not. You know, and obviously there are some differences, but to a certain extent, you know what? It's tennis. No matter where you're playing, no matter what the conditions are, and if you have a game that can pose lots of different questions to an opponent and cause your opponent to to, to doubt him or herself. Uh, to cause an opponent to, you know, try to find uh, an array of shots, an array of resources that 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 opponent might not have, um, you should be able, you should be uh, creating a diverse game, no matter where you are. Like that's always going to serve you well. You're always going to have more resources, more tools in the toolbox. I mean, look at Holger Runa. You know, always looking to to do something different. If it's going to help him win, he's not married to one playing style. That's been a part of his rise uh, on tour. Has lots of different ways to win. Uh, he's able to win when his body is, you know, barking against him, as as we saw against Sarundalo at this Roland Garros tournament. Uh, you know, and you you consider other players as well, uh, who you know are able to turn to a different plan or a different approach. You don't get there if you're just staying at the baseline. Um, you don't get there if you're thinking that like I can only play one way, I can only play one style. That's really the lesson of, of Carolina Makova. And uh, you know, and the other thing we have to say is as as much as she doesn't play a pure power game, we sh- that shouldn't lead us to think that she isn't tough because she had to be very, very tough to come back from two five in the third uh, against an informed Sabalenka in what was a very long match, played in a hot sun uh, in that Thursday semifinal. So it's not just that Mukova is this, you know, artist, though she is, like her game is very artistic, but she showed a heck of a lot of toughness uh, beating Sabalenka. And then, you know, she was down a set and three love against Sviantec, came really close to winning that match. Uh, like she, she has a heck of a lot of uh, toughness and that point can't go unremarked upon. 
Yeah, again, uh, the women's field keeps getting better in, in its own ways because we needed uh, some of the gaps and some of the vacuum left by Barty's retirement and Osaka's absence. And I can't say, you know, the, you know, with Sabak, uh, Rabakina, Sabalenka, and now Mohova, they have all stepped up. And we still, you know, there's a lot of hope in a Coco Golf and Pegula and Badosa. So, yeah, it does, does seem like uh, a, a, a good summer to look forward to with Wimbledon and then all the way to the Open. So, Matt, any parting words? For this uh, Roland Garros fortnight, we, you know, you had a written account here and then we did a couple of spaces. We had a preview show. What are the parting thoughts or maybe a parting thought? Well, just in terms of Djokovic, you know, he doesn't have the Olympics this year. And many of us, and I, I was very much part of this group. I was saying, you know, hey, if you want that Grand Slam, don't play the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Well, now Djokovic doesn't have that uh, as a potential distraction. Uh, so like that part of the schedule is certainly lining up for him. I think in terms of other notes and just other players, we haven't mentioned, uh, to any degree, um, Jessica Pagula, you know, she's not, she's not a, uh, an especially young player. Like she's, she's, uh, you know, been, been on tour for several years. Like this was, this looked like a tournament where the draw was, was open for her and she had a chance to make that first major semifinal. Very disappointing. How is she going to react? And how are other older players who had real chances in the draw? Like, think of Grigor Dimitrov. Like, he, he had a chance to do something really special. Um, how do they respond to the disappointment that they endured at Roland Garros? Do they have something really big to offer us at Wimbledon and or the U.S. Open? Or is are we going to look back on this tournament as kind of a last hurrah, a last chance that went begging and something that like they never get as good a, a bite at the apple ever again. That's going to be a question I'm going to be certainly monitoring as we head to Wimbledon, you know, for older players who really had a chance to do something special, had a chance to do something unprecedented, but it didn't happen. Follow those players uh, at Wimbledon and see if, if they can actually respond to this Roland Garros disappointment with a big comeback or if the magic really begins to fade away. Yeah, well said. So, yeah, definitely we'll be doing a, a Wimbledon preview podcast or a Twitter space. Stay, stay tuned with Accent Tennis or Matt's account or my account. And this was a fun two weeks. Uh, the hangover of uh, uh, a Grand Slam ending is always there, but good news is there's plenty of grass court tennis to uh, to follow, and then momentum picks up next week all the way to Wimbledon, you know, two more weeks to go after this. He's Matt Samek. I'm Sakib Ali. We should be talking more tennis here along with Murta Tunga, Andrew Burton and uh, other team members here. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Bye for now. Bye.